Part five of Religio Journalistici by Christopher Morley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part five. Speaking of ambassadors, there was one in the sixteenth century who told the following story. At Constantinople, I saw an old man who, after he had taken a cup of wine in his hand to drink, used first to make a hideous noise. I asked his friends why he did so. They answered me that, by this outcry, he did, as it were, warn his soul to retire to some secret corner of his body, or else wholly to emigrate, and pass out of it, that it might not be guilty of that sin which he was about to commit, nor be defiled with the wine that he was about to guzzle down. This humorous ancient was not unlike the modern newspaper man. The hideous noise of the press, its conscience-annulling haste, its sense of power and almost uncontradictable certainty, are what he employs to warn his soul, his reason, not to look over his shoulder while he is at work. The fact is that the whole ingenious mechanism of a newspaper is so automatically conjointed and revolves so rapidly that by sheer fury and speed of movement it takes on a kind of synthetic life of its own. It could well be imagined thundering round and round of its own accord in a great jovial shouting stupor. A leading editorial, tearing passions to tatters, could arise by spontaneous combustion, exhaling itself somehow from the general uproar and joy. Virgin birth would be no miracle in a newspaper office. I have seen, and myself committed, editorial matter whose parent had never been approached by any siring intelligence. Or, in the case of the reporter, painfully trained in a generous human skepticism, enforced student of the way people behave and the way things happen, alert to discern the overtones of irony and pathos in the event, you might expect him to be the least credulous of beings. If so, the general flavor of the press little represents him. He acquiesces, consciously or unconsciously, in the fact that in all but a few really intelligent journals, the news columns are edited down to the level of the proprietor's intelligence, or what the active managers imagine to be the proprietor's taste, not in facts, but in the tone adopted in setting out those facts. An index expurgatorius is issued for office guidance, lists made of words and phrases not to be mentioned in news stories. The more essentially vulgar a paper is, the more cautious it will be not to use words the managing editor believes dirty. Obscene, for example, is deleted, and the truly disgusting word spicy is substituted. And the reporter himself, having acquiesced, it is not unnatural that the readers of the paper do also. The great majority of them, tippling their customary sheet day after day with the regularity of dram fiends, are so indurated to the grotesque psychology of the more popular news columns that to find a paper habitually speaking recognizable moderate sense would afflict them with a warmth of indecency and dismay. The daily journals give them the same pleasure that the serial parts of Dickens' novels gave the early Victorians eighty and ninety years ago. 
So we have the agreeable paradox that these papers we see all around us, roaring their naivetes and scandals, are written and compiled by those who are, as individuals, studious, serene, and gently ascetic skeptics. It is an entertaining thought. If it is true, I believe it is due to what I think of as the carburetor adjustment of the human mind, a delicate, unconscious, and continuous process. It pleases me to imagine that in the intellect there is a valve that regulates the mixture of truth and convention that we utter, just as gasoline and heated air are mixed and vaporized in the carburetor of an engine. Whenever we meet anyone, or at any rate any stranger, we are likely to be on our guard. We have our own little private reservoir of sincerity, but we don't intend to draw on it too largely until we know we are safe. There are some people, as you must have noticed, to whom it is almost impossible to say a word of what you really believe. Accordingly, automatically, and almost unconsciously, we make a mental adjustment of our mixture. We admit into it just as much truth as we believe the other is likely to relish or willing to receive. But we may have made a bad guess. The conversation begins to backfire. That means the mixture is too lean. Very well. Pull out the choke. Enrich it with more candor. All goes delightfully. Too rich a mixture, however, is, every mechanician knows, as bad as too lean. The mind gets crusted with carbon unassimilated truth. The analogy seems to me highly applicable, even down to the infusion of what used to be called in the bygone slang, hot air. Through this needle valve, for the most part unconsciously, we regulate our mental ignition. All this, as you shall see presently, has its just bearing on our topic of religion. We need, but are little likely to get, a new Areopagitica, to liberate our press from its cheery bondage of vulgarity and slip-slop thinking. The newspaper man who has pride in his honourable tradition may well feel grim to see the things he has sweat for trafficked across counters like bundles of merchandise. Yes, and to see the transaction applauded by eminent statesmen and divines who feel the need of a front-page quote. A little pride is desirable now and then. Yes, in God's name, a little pride, gentlemen. We, who have lived as best we could for the decency of letters, who have vigiled with Chaucer and taken wine with Descartes and changed opinion with Dr. Johnson, are we to be hired to and fro by the genial hucksters who know the art of print chiefly as a rapid factory for gaily tinted palaver? In his right place, beset by doubts just as acute as those of the young theologian, our newspaper man reticionates upon the quaint processes of mind. He broods on the haphazard, interest-tainted, and fallible nature of most mortal opinion. He studies the relativity of truth and the proliferation of rumor. He notes how every event is like a stone cast into a pond. It ejaculates concentric vibrations, widening loops of hearsay. Varying layers or rings of truth are available for different classes of bystanders or by thinkers. How well he knows the queer fact 
that you can say, unrebuked, in a weekly, what would never pass in a daily. You can say still more in a monthly. In a quarterly review, almost all the beans can be decanted. And in a book, quite often you can print your own surmises in full. Of course, to tell exactly what happens, as Pepys did, it is best to be dead. How odd is the saying, dead men tell no tales. Why, they tell the best tales of all. It does sometimes seem as though the more immediate readers there are for any bit of print, the less candor can be rationed out for each. So every human being stands at the center of a little eddy or whirl of testimony. If one could make a map or editor's projection of him, considered as a news item, it would be as complicated as an ocean chart with festoons of barographs and isotherms, curves and twists and arrows indicating set of currents, prevailing winds, soundings. On such a chart we would denote here a cyclone of scandal, there a hot monsoon of misappreciation, yonder a steady trade wind of generous sympathy. In an ocean so various we should find our victim leading a thousand different phantom lives in the opinion of others. If you begin to think about this sort of thing, the asylum waits. For truly, confronted by the alternating delights and possibilities of life, the mind is not unlike that chameleon that went mad when tethered on a paisley shawl. The newspaper man, then, begins to feel, perhaps, that it is necessary for him to undertake the burden of fidelity to human realities, that burden that is often so lightly shrugged off by bishops. Looking at things in the large, or trying to, he strongly suspects that formal religion, as we have known it, is dying. Lovelier and greater poetries are pushing in. There are thousands of years still to come, you know. The highest honor that he can pay to sacred matters is to regard them as so thrillingly actual that they can be accepted into the great general body of human life. To regard them, indeed, as news, as the word gospel itself suggests, it would seem fairly obvious that the miracles and parables of the New Testament, like the various creeds themselves, were intended as vivid and stunning apologues. To batter them down to the level of facts seems to degrade them, as it would be degrading to reject Keats's sonnet because there are no peaks in the Isthmus of Darien, and because it wasn't Cortez. The newspaper man prefers to take his stand with Tolstoy, who said in that thrilling book, A Confession, I wish to understand in such a way that everything that is inexplicable shall present itself to me as necessarily inexplicable. He prefers that when there is an available and mortally recognizable way of understanding things, they should so be understood. Take, for example, the story of the miracle at Cana. To a man trained to observe the delightful ways in which testimony arises and is transmitted, how does that story explain itself? Here is a wedding party at which appears the amazing stranger. He seems a man more fascinating, more charming, more utterly delightful than any that those country folk have ever encountered. They are all very merry, the toasts go round, the wine runs short. But the ruler of the feast, turning to the stranger, says prettily enough, I think, with you here, water is as good as wine. 
someone else takes it up echoing the sentiment seeking to add to it right he cries our friend here makes the water into wine here's to you and with friendly applause the gathering ratifies the compliment one of the servants overhears and carries the incident into the kitchen how quickly it grows and passes down the village street they've got someone in there who's turning water into wine can it be denied that this is the way that human events are reported let us take an example of a miracle germ in our own times when horace Traubel, faithful and simple-minded disciple of walt whitman died in september nineteen nineteen his body was taken to the community church at park avenue and thirty-fourth street new york for the funeral service but when the body reached the church the little company of mourners could not enter the building had suddenly caught fire imagine this episode handed down through generations of simple people by word of mouth the intimate disciple of a great poet both of them impatient of the genteel religions is born dead to a sacred edifice it bursts into flame would that not be taken as some authentic pentecost and at the very least as a proof of walt's divinity yet we know well enough that the event was no miracle but rather what hobbes called an extraordinary felicity there is one more biblical passage i should like to refer to one that has often been considered a naughty saying it is the parable of the talents and the unprofitable servant i like to conceive deity in the guise of that hard master who wanted his own with usury well i can imagine god saying to the newly dead what did you think of that world i gave you not so bad on the whole replies the embarrassed soul what cries god simpleton do you mean to say you took it as you found it accepted it swallowed it down without question depart from me unprofitable servant you were supposed to remould it nearer to your heart's desire to create out of my materials a new world of your own old dr jewett said to margaret asketh you must believe in god in spite of what the clergy say and truly i don't think that any man who has worked in downtown new york can be much of an atheist in that great jungle of violent life under the glittering spires of such steep cathedrals he must inevitably be a trifle mad even manhattan supposed to be the most material of cities is best known for the fantastic figure she cuts against the sky the loveliest picture i ever saw of her profile was a photograph given me by an amateur lensman who caught it by accident it shows that uneven scarp of buildings in soft masses of dark and shadow looming on a queerly pebbled and fuscous twilight like an eclipse and this as my astonished friend learned from his film dealer was an accident due to mildew on the gelatin so some of the most lovely visions of reality are printed on minds that are mildewed the madman and the nincompoop often see more beauty than the sane and solid sight the only possible suggestion that one might humbly venture to offer to the authoritative officers of holy church is that they are too sane and too businesslike they ask us to believe not things that are too hard but too easy they are too eager to lock the stable door after the messiah has been stolen 
They have learned the tricks of our world of flesh so glibly that they seem sometimes to forget the manners of that world of spirit they are commissioned to represent. For the world is fascinating and painful beyond human power of testimony. The best of every life is unprintable. If one were given five minutes' warning before sudden death, five minutes to say what it had all meant to us, every telephone booth would be occupied by people trying to call up other people to stammer that they love them. You would want to tell a whole lot of people that you love them, but had been too clumsy and too shy to admit it. And the newspaper man himself, who both loves and hates his queer trade, would be the first to remember that one always is severest with what one adores. Every movement is set in some strange turning of wonder. As a man will suddenly discover in himself some miserable petty trick of behavior which he painfully realizes is a true microcosm and characteristic of his life as a whole, so now and then with the world at large. We are aware of lights and shadows and moments of millennium that seem a part of some vast consistency. You know the thrill of a letter or parcel that comes from someone you are fond of far away. As you undo the string, you say foolishly, but with a genuine quaver of sentiment, when that was tied up, so-and-so handled it. Well, there are instants of preposterous happiness, clear insight, that are just like that, little packages of reality tied up in the twine of our time-sense that come to us direct, intact from the eternity and infinity we call God. It matters little how you explain that great word to yourself. Perhaps you mean by it the sum total of all human awareness of beauty. In that sense of prevailing loveliness, we are all obscurely united. In those moments, moments of heavenly farce and unredeemable tragedy, we can forgive ourselves for being only human." But in these matters, silence is the final eloquence. One does not argue with moonlight. Men talk of finding God, but no wonder it is difficult. He is hidden in that darkest of hiding places, your own heart. You yourself are a part of him. The chief danger is to be too prosaic. Anyone who has ever done proofreading knows the delicious fidelity and strict zeal and maddening literalness with which the professional corrector marks a galley-proof. How he construes the text according to his own rote and rigid scheme. How he resents any unusual use of words. How he is so busy querying things that look odd to him that he misses many of the downright errors. That is precisely the attitude of man toward the universe, which he is so daringly anxious to interpret in some comforting sense. The journalist, whatever his sins and stupidities, would hope to enjoy the text of life in the spirit of a collaborating author rather than presume to correct it. And he will not do any great poet, such as Christ, the dishonor of taking him too literally." We cannot hope until we have learned to despair. Let me remind you of some great lines by Andrew Marvel. My love is of a birth as rare as tis for objects strange and high. It was begotten by despair upon impossibility. As lines, so loves oblique, may well themselves in every angle greet. But ours, so truly parallel, though infinite, 
can never meet. End of part five. End of Religio Journalistici by Christopher Morley.